Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, April 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, new findings show Mississippi defendants can spend months or even years in local jails before they even go to trial. We'll hear the details. Are we really not safe if someone charged with simple possession of marijuana is released pending their trial when otherwise they might sit for six or nine months or a year? Then the latest on the mental health task force as members from across the state work to improve health care to those who need it. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, find out how you can help a program that serves meals to seniors and the homebound. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi inmates awaiting trial can spend months or even years in local jails. That's according to a new survey by the MacArthur Justice Center, part of the University of Mississippi Law School. Students and staff identified more than 7,000 inmates. Some of them were already convicted, but the majority await trial. More than a third of all of those jailed before trial were there for 90 or more consecutive days. More than 600 had been in jail longer than a year. Cliff Johnson is director of the MacArthur Justice Center. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood how the program began. We've been concerned for quite a while about long-term pretrial detention in Mississippi. We've had conversations with public defenders, families of people who are incarcerated for years now, but the information we had was anecdotal. Recently, the Mississippi Supreme Court imposed a new rule that said sheriffs must produce a list of everyone in their jail periodically. And we decided we wanted to get copies of those lists so we could better understand how many people are incarcerated, why they're there, how long they've been there. So our uh, clinic, the MacArthur Justice Clinic here at the law school, issued hundreds of public records requests, collected the data over time, these lists, and then manually input more than 7,000 lines of data so the public also could see what we were seeing, and that, and that is a, a real problem with long-term pretrial detention in our county jails. I saw on uh, some of the 
um, like graphs, um, just showing like different counties in the state, and you would see this this large difference in uh, variance actually in the average of days that inmates um, are on hold before indictment or um, you know before trial. So, what like what are the challenges in Mississippi that would allow for that? One of the things that we recognize is that the reasons for delay vary significantly from one county to the next. And and as we've said, the reasons for delay in our criminal justice system in Mississippi are many and varied. In some situations, you have prosecutors who are waiting for results from the crime lab. The crime lab is understaffed and underfunded, and you have uh, drug tests that have been pending for six months or more. You have autopsies that haven't, haven't been finalized in over a year. So you have crime lab issues. You have people sitting in jail waiting for mental health evaluations. The Department of Mental Health is underfunded and has too few beds to conduct the analysis that people need to determine whether they're competent for trial or to provide the, health, the mental health care that they need. You have some situations where um, law enforcement arrests someone and then they don't, uh, they don't finish the investigation in a timely manner and people sit and wait because they can't make bail while the police get around to ultimately finishing up the case. Some instances, the public defenders aren't pushing the cases, and they continue to ask for continuance after continuance rather than pushing people's cases to trial. Judges sometimes aren't as diligent as they might be, and the judges are the ones who are imposing bail that results in poor people being incarcerated. So so there's a, there are a lot of moving parts. There's plenty of blame to go around, and in some counties it's it's much worse than others. So what does that say about the people that are sitting behind, you know, jail cells long-term, I mean, what is that doing to them? The reality of incarceration is something we have to be very honest about. What we know and what the data shows is that after only three days of incarceration, people's lives start to unravel. You know, after a few days, you lose your job. When you lose your job, your housing becomes precarious. Many people lose their housing. If they owe child support, they get behind on their child support. If they had a car payment, they lose their car. So locking someone up, particularly locking someone up pre-trial, before they've been convicted of any crime, while they still enjoy the presumption of innocence, is a very big deal. And local communities and the state pay a price when people's lives start to unravel as a result of pre-trial incarceration. These people come back into the communities, come back into our cities without any means of support, without employment, and then you know people complain about them not being productive citizens. So we have to be honest regarding the price we pay for locking people up. Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Students also found the average waiting period in Mississippi is longer than for citizens in many other states. Republican Representative Ashley Henley of South Haven is on the House Corrections Committee. She says lawmakers are working on reforms. We have um, tried to uh, pass some reforms here recently. Actually, this last session, we did pass a bill requiring all of the uh, law enforcement agencies uh, in the state to um, be accountable for reporting to the National Incident-Based Reporting System and uh, a review done. Um, That goes into effect July 1st of this year. What do you hope will come of it? 
I, I hope it will meet one of those recommendations that all of the counties and municipalities uh, throughout the state uh, join together to have one unified reporting system. Uh, I believe that was a, a direct recommendation of the MacArthur report. House Republican Ashley Henley. The database is available online at msjaildata.com. Coming up, the latest on the Mental Health Task Force as members from across the state work to improve health care to those who need it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Mississippi Edition, you'll hear in-depth discussions on the issues that matter to you. We'll bring you important news about the state's always changing political climate. You'll hear from community leaders and others working to make a difference. And of course, there'll be stories from the real lives of real Mississippians. So check us out. We're online at mpbonline.org or on the air every weekday morning at 830 right here on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Years of state budget cuts, litigation, and reduction in services have mental health providers in Mississippi looking for ways to improve. They say more money and new legislation would enhance treatment for patients and families. The state attorney general's mental health task force met in Jackson on Tuesday. The group is focused on several areas, including commitment procedures, treatment, and prevention. The collaborative includes the State Departments of Health, Mental Health, Corrections, and Hospitals, as well as private organizations and the judiciary, among others. Paula Broom is chief of the Attorney General's Bureau of Victims Assistance. She tells MPB's Mark Rigsby the goal of the task force. The primary importance is to get everybody at the table that has a voice uh, uh, towards mental health issues, uh, addiction issues, uh, and move forward with some progress. Uh, with all the voices here, we're kind of breaking down what's working in Mississippi, what's not working, what changes need to be made, what steps can be taken in, immediately and in the future. How big of an issue is this for our state? It's a very big issue. Uh, Mississippians with mental health illnesses, addiction issues, their families, uh, navigating the system, uh, finding appropriate resources, um, those are all issues that, that, that folks deal with day to day. Obviously, we need more resources. Uh, more resources takes more money. We need more beds uh, in mental health facilities and addiction uh, treatment programs. We need more uh, community outreach uh, programs. Uh, so all around the board, it is, it's an issue that, uh, that we've got to do a better job at addressing, and that's the goal of the, the task force is to find ways to, to, to move forward, move the state forward, even in the face of not having the funding. What have we learned so far? As a group, I think we've learned uh, of resources out there that not everybody knew about because we've got so many organizations at the table uh, that can talk about what services they do provide. Uh, we've learned uh, that certainly we need uh, uh, to, to look at legislation and at, at how the process can be navigated for commitments, uh, and we're certainly doing that and uh, uh, working on some legislative language that, that may be proposed in the next session. Uh, we're looking at community outreach um, and uh, the need for more education of the communities. Uh, it's really too early to tell as, as 
what can we step out right now and, and do? I think we are making progress. The committees are moving forward with their each uh, each subcommittee. There's six subcommittees. They all have a task or numerous tasks that they're going towards. So it's about uh, basically putting the pieces to the of uh, the puzzle together. Attorney General Bureau Chief Paula Broom with our Mark Rigsby. Over the past decade, the state has faced lawsuits over not providing adequate mental health care and resources. Dave Van is executive director of Region 8 Community Mental Health. It's one of 14 mental health facilities in the state. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby the challenge the task force is facing. Oh, it's extremely challenging. Uh, the mental health field uh, obviously is, is, is extremely complicated and, uh, and complex. The system is certainly complex, and uh, uh, we don't have an x-ray machine to determine, you know, whether somebody is, uh, uh, has a serious mental illness or not. We do the very best we can to make judgments based on uh, best practices and assessments that are available to us, utilizing credentials and abilities of strong uh, clinical individuals to make those those particular decisions. Uh, also, uh, um, uh, available resources uh, play into um, how well the treatment is or can be for individuals in our catchment area. Um, throughout our state, it's 82 counties, uh, tends to be somewhat, uh, services tend to be somewhat fragmented because of resources that are available in some areas of the state versus others. Why are you on this task force? I'm on the task force because my passion has always been uh, helping those individuals that are the most vulnerable, those who suffer from a mental illness, those who have issues that are not necessarily visible to everybody in the community, those people that are hurting. We have, I think, all of all of us who not just work at Region 8, but who go into the mental health field, have a uh, somewhat of compassion uh, and a passion for uh, helping these individuals uh, that, uh, that have a very uh, difficult time helping themselves from time to time. The Mental Health Task Force has met a few times. What have you learned so far? I've learned that we have a lot of strong-minded, competent individuals in the state of Mississippi in different areas that are coming together and they have a, a desire and a will to come together for the benefit of the most vulnerable citizens that we have in the state of Mississippi. And I think that is absolutely excellent. I think that um, that everybody's heart is in the right place in this particular, on this task force. I think that they are moving in a very positive direction and the consumers, family members, those needing these services the most around the state of Mississippi will certainly benefit from the results of this task force. Give me some of your assessments uh, on what some of the solutions are to make mental health services better in Mississippi? Well, I don't personally have uh, a solution because that is the work of the task force is to, uh, to work together to come up with the best solutions, but some of the topics that we are addressing are trying to make the involuntary commitment process uh, for those individuals that are in a crisis situation uh, easier to navigate through family members, uh, also um, to make it uh, less complicated for them and, uh, and to, um, to identify and um, uh, additional resources that could benefit individuals that uh, suffer from a mental illness. So that is one topic, and certainly each subcommittee has their own topics they're working on. The particular committee that I'm on uh, is, is, is tackling the, uh, the, the uh, involuntary commitment laws uh, and um, working through a, a series of confusing 
legislation in order to simplify that for the benefit of uh, of the consumers, and certainly these will be uh, will be recommendations to the legislature in the future. Region 8 Executive Director Dave Van with our Mark Rigsby. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, find out how you can help a program that serves meals to seniors and the homebound. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Everybody wants to know more about exercise. Current guidelines suggest 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity or 75 minutes per week of vigorous intensity aerobic exercise for all U.S. adults. The question is, how much benefit can you get from how much exercise? Well, we now know. A large study published in the uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology has figured out how much exercise it takes to get the maximum long-term health benefit. And unfortunately for me, it's a lot. The news is it takes nine hours of moderate intensity activity per week or almost five hours of vigorous activity to achieve the maximum cardiovascular benefit. The good news is The benefit starts with any exercise, so if you can't do that much, you still get a good benefit. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy, live blue. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. With a growing population of senior citizens, Mississippi food programs are looking for ways to meet the need. The senior population is projected to double by 2050. According to food service program Meals on Wheels, 10 million seniors nationwide don't know where their next meal will come from. Volunteers with the Meals on Wheels program deliver meals along with what they call crucial moments of human connection. They say the volunteer who drops off their meal could be the only person many seniors will see that day. The program is working to inspire a new generation of volunteers to keep up with the growing need. Ellie Hollander is president of Meals on Wheels America, and Nina Bird is a volunteer. Hollander tells us the Let's Do Lunch campaign and its goal to close gaps in service. We serve 2.4 million seniors annually in our nation, but we know that there are about 10 million that struggle with hunger. So there's a big gap, Karen, between how many we're able to serve and where the need is. So we're looking for some volunteers to help us fill that gap. How many volunteers do you have now to try and meet that need? We have an army of some 2 million volunteers across the country uh, today, and many of those volunteers three-quarters of which, actually, are 55 and older. So part of our goal in this new campaign, America Let's Do Lunch, is to uh, enlist a whole new wave of volunteers to help support the network that we have today. 
Tell us what the process is. Someone's delivering a meal or meals to seniors. Where do the meals come from? How many seniors do they deliver to? Each program is a little bit different, which is the beauty and the richness of the program, and that Meals on Wheels programs and communities um, are built to respond to the needs of that particular community. So some programs are quite small, and they may prepare their own meals or they may have those meals catered. Some programs are actually quite large and may be actually distributing 5,000 meals a day, and they have huge kitchens. So the range is quite vast, um, and it really depends on the resources in that community and the number of volunteers they have as well as the number of vulnerable seniors who actually need a helping hand, nutrition, socialization, uh, a friendly visit. There were proposals to have Meals on Wheels cut. Has that happened, and, and are you prepared to deal with that? Well, we struggled over the past several years uh, with diminishing resources anyway because the need has grown uh, and the funding levels have not kept pace with that. So we continue to make the business case to show that we can serve a senior Meals on Wheels for an entire year for the same cost of that senior being in the hospital for one day or a nursing home for 10 because that's a very compelling argument that supports the value of the program in terms of just saving taxpayer dollars. But we have continued to see support on Capitol Hill. It's a, it's a bipartisan issue. Everybody supports Meals on Wheels. We have congressmen and senators delivering meals even as we speak this week across the country. So we've had support, but given the fact that budgets are tight, um, you know, we have not seen the boosting in these programs that we'd like to see because we know that they actually return uh, an economic benefit to our country. Nina, let me ask you, uh, tell us a few things about yourself. Absolutely. I'd be happy to share that information. So I'm in my 20s. On the later end of that, I'm a millennial. I don't have any children, but I recently got engaged, and I relocated from New York, where I was part of the program there, Meals on Wheels, to Portland, Oregon this past year. And I do work. I work for a marketing firm, um, sometimes remote, sometimes in office. So very busy life, and uh, I managed to fit in Meals on Wheels because it's a, a program that's just critically important to me. And that you really do represent a, a population of of go-getters. You know, you have a career, you have goals, you just got engaged, congratulations, and yet you still find time to do this. It's critically important, as you said, but what brought you to it initially? Well, really, I think it was a yearning for connection to my community. I mean, I was born and raised in upstate New York, but I just felt very disenfranchised from the people right around me. So I ride past the Meals on Wheels billboard that had probably been there for 20 years. I think it's still there today. And I finally gave them a call and decided to sign up. And what was really interesting that I found with um, that relationship is that because it was mostly seniors delivering to seniors, you know, some of the seniors driving had mobility issues. I don't have mobility issues, so I was able to hop in and out of the car through the snow, through the rain, <laughs> deliver the meals, and they, they would drive because they weren't comfortable doing that. So, you know, with this campaign, we're really trying to mobilize the generation, millennials, Generation Z, and these younger people to get involved in one hour a week, one hour a month. It's incredibly flexible with long-lasting benefits, and the need is, is very real. We're always short volunteers. Is it more than delivering meals when you go to someone's house? Do you leave them a meal and leave, or do, do you ha establish a relationship with each of those people? 
Yeah, well, our seniors are just like regular people, so every senior is completely different. But I certainly have my favorites, even though you're not supposed to. (laughs) I've been almost adopted like a granddaughter into several of the homes of some of my seniors, my regulars on my route, so to speak. And uh, sometimes they have a hard time even leaving their apartment because they want to show me pictures of their grandkids or want me to help them update their Android phone or just a safety check. You know, we have seniors that go in and out of the hospital. Sometimes we're the first person to make that call to a, a social worker or to someone to help that senior because they're only seeing someone once a week. And these meals are, are, are critically important because hunger is such a big issue. We say let's do lunch, America let's do lunch, but sometimes this is the only meal a senior receives for the entire day. So it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Allie, I'm sure there are people listening who think it's great. I would love to do it, but I don't think I have the time. It's a huge responsibility. What do you say to those people? Volunteering with Meals on Wheels may sound like it's a big commitment, but it doesn't have to be. And I would encourage folks to visit our website, americaletsdolunch.org, and you can be connected with a local program. You can volunteer once a month. You can volunteer once a week. It really is is slated to work around your schedule to be flexible. Uh, It really is only about donating your lunch break when you have the time to do it. Ellie Hollander is the president and CEO of Meals on Wheels America, and Nina Bird is a Meals on Wheels volunteer. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thanks so much. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.